All right, joining me here on the Ari of NFL show. He is a salary cap expert here at PFF. Um, I think this is your third or fourth time already, Brad, but um, it is Brad Spielberger. Welcome back to the show. We finally got some real games in. We can finally stop talking about what we think will happen and talk about what actually happened. How are you, Brad? Yeah, happy to be here again. I'm running up the tally on the recurring guest count. And like you said, our first time, you and I, you know, actually talking about game action is going to be a lot of fun. It is. And honestly, the week one, it, it was there was so much madness that went on. Obviously, Thursday night, Bills and Rams was a game that I think everyone thought it would be much closer than it was. But Buffalo came in and just hammered them. Sunday, it felt like it started off a little bit slow with the one o'clock hour, but then eventually just heated up and the endings were amazing. And then we wrap it up with Monday night, which I thought was the best game of the week with the Seahawks and the Rams, um, Seahawks and the Broncos, excuse me, with Russell Wilson's return, Geno Smith playing like, uh, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, he was just incredible the way he played and then getting all the Geno chants in Seattle and that very bizarre ending there in Seattle. I want to start there because I'm going to talk about Nathaniel Hackett first because Obviously, the ending, like I said, was very bizarre, but his explanation after the game was also, you know, he kind of doubled down on his decision. Pete Carroll basically did one final twist of the knife to Russell Wilson by saying they were fortunate that Denver would do something that stupid. Then on Tuesday, I'm scrolling through my Twitter timeline and I see that Hackett tells reporters that he messed up. And I was glad that he did. Like, learn from your mistake, move on. It's a long season. But then I go to watch the press conference and see it in video form. And he didn't necessarily apologize for it. I want to play the video here because I don't think people have seen the full thing. Let's play it over here. You know, looking back at it, we definitely should have gone for it. Um, Just not, not, you know, one of those things. You look back at it and you say, of course we should go for it. We missed the field goal. Um, but in that situation, we had a plan. I mean, we had a plan. We knew that the 46 was the mark. Uh, we were third and 15, I think, third and 13. I'm more upset about that play before it to lose yards, to be able to, you know, getting that there would have definitely uh, been better to be able to call that same play and get extra yards. But um, he dumps it out to Javante. Javante makes a move, goes a lot farther than I think we had anticipated. We were expecting to go for it on fourth down, and then you hit the mark. You know, the mark that we had all set before we started, we said uh, 46 yards, 46-yard uh, line was where we wanted to be, and uh, we got there. So we had to make the decision if we wanted to give it to, uh, you know, Brandon, and we did. And it didn't work. It sucks, but, hey, that's part of it. All right. So his comment was essentially on the premise that they missed the field goal. So obviously we should have won for it. But he keeps on going back to this 64-yard field goal was the target. The quote that everyone was sharing on Twitter isn't in, isn't him admitting that he screwed up, Brad? I cannot tell you how happy I am that you just began the show this way. And for folks, I didn't know this was coming. I was about to tweet this this morning. It's a perfect example, and I want to give you credit because I think you might be the best in the business at this, where a quote gets out and everyone runs with that story and takes that narrative, and it's not actually what was said. He was basically making fun of us and saying, yeah, with the gift of hindsight, if I knew I missed a field goal, then I would not have kicked a field goal. So he, almost, he tripled down, really, and it's kind of funny how everyone is now saying, oh, he owned up to it, he made the mistake, and good for him, and yada, yada, and that's actually the opposite of what he did. So it is. The whole thing was crazy. I mean, no kicker has made a kick over 57 yards in Seattle. I know people talked about Brandon McManus. Look, kicking in Denver is a lot different with that altitude than kicking at sea level in Seattle. So it was a bad decision, and the fact that he's still defending it is uh, it's it's you know not explainable at this point. You know, 
you're right. I mean, a lot of this, I do believe a lot of it is a little bit overreacting. Like, uh, it is his first game, so I don't want everyone to go crazy. But I was starting to think about this a little bit, and I don't know if you would be on board with me, but, like, you know, this AFC West is such a stacked division, right? If the Broncos this year, I don't know, go 7-10, and 10, okay, I don't want to jump too far, but I'm just thinking about the fact that there were new owners brought in and they didn't really hire Nathaniel Hackett. Do you feel like that's something that at least people should be thinking about? The owners usually, they're very involved in the hiring process. If we didn't hire this guy, if we don't have a great year, is that something that they might consider over here and he should definitely be thinking about throughout the year? That's a really interesting point. I mean, they did try to say they were going to be more hands-off maybe than other ownership groups, and maybe we take that at face value, but it's hard to gauge. I will say, I guess the one counter is, if I remember correctly, and I'm sure you do, they were like one of the first teams to be active in their coaching search. They really got after it. They brought in a ton of different candidates. They basically interviewed the entire Green Bay Packers organization and landed on Nathaniel Hackett. So I, I think he has familiarity with GM George Payton, and I do believe ownership that they're going to let him truly run the show um but it's a great point i, I mean the money one of the bigger issues is hey we don't want to pay this coach's buyout and then pay another coach more money that's not actually an issue in denver at this point it's not and th the only reason i thought about that is essentially that a lot of not but the, a lot of owners in the nfl they do have a lot of say in what's going on in the organization but a lot of fans don't realize it because they're more behind the scenes unlike jerry jones for example in dallas who's talking basically every single day but i just kind of wonder if they do have a bad year does ownership step in and say, let us bring in our own people and see what we can do from there? I know I'm jumping very far, but for me, at the end of the day, this was a, a team that had over 400 yards of offense. This is a team that if there were no two fumbles near the end zone, then none of this is even being talked about. So I wouldn't necessarily go that far right now, but um, to be in that situation and for him to essentially triple down, like you said, I don't think people picked up on it. And it was a very bizarre thing that he did there um, on Tuesday when he spoke to reporters. I mentioned Jerry Jones just now. Dr. Jerry Jones came out and said that Dak will not be going on IR after he, get, he got hurt on Sunday night. Coming into the season, I was a bit concerned with this Cowboys team. You know, they lose Mari Cooper. You lose Randy Gregory. You lose Lyle Collins. Tyron Smith gets hurt before the season starts. Now you're losing Dak Prescott for the next several weeks. It's basically the cherry on top and what has been a just awful stretch here for Dallas. Your panic level with this team is where right now? It's really high because it started the season really high and it's, and it's gone up. So you mentioned Tyron Smith. They're also now without left guard Connor McGovern. So maybe Tyler Smith, their rookie, who I thought played pretty well at left tackle in his debut. Maybe he kicks back inside and they bring Jason Peters off the practice squad. But he also signed about two weeks ago and he's 40 years old. So, you know, he's a great player still. Earned a 77 grade for us last year, but maybe has an acclimation period. But I think the bigger thing, frankly, is you go back and watch this film receivers weren't getting open. I mean, Dak did not look good. And I think you could see, you know, I, once I watched the all 22 versus the broadcast, I don't think he looked good because their guys weren't really getting open. It was CD lamb and then some bodies around him. Um, and that was the concern with losing Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, not healthy, losing a guy like a Cedric Wilson. My panic level for them is really high. Yeah. I mean, it's been such a bad stretch for them. And Jerry Jones has been doing a lot of the talking in the media and he's always, He's had this thing over the last few weeks where he's been very positive despite everything going the wrong way for them. But I just wonder, like, Cooper Rush, he won a game last year when he started against the Vikings. 
if let's just say they actually only misses four games, which I doubt, I think it'll be probably closer to that six to eight week stretch. How much do you think people are going to be talking about the whole Mike McCarthy thing? Because now that Dak is out, I guess he has that built-in excuse. But everyone out there is going to eventually bring in the Sean Payton element. And I don't know how much you've been watching Fox this past week, but Sean has been doing a lot of TV. And he's mentioned numerous times that he will be back in coaching. Do you feel like this topic will eventually really start heating up there in Dallas? I do, and it's unfortunate because it's probably not particularly fair to Mike McCarthy that you got the roster and then his quarterback who kind of is supposed to lift you know, the pieces around him, but it's an easy out, right? It's a safety valve where Jerry Jones can just point at the record and say, yeah, you know, we, we had high hopes. We thought we were going to be good this year, even though they're 30th in cash spending in the NFL this season, um, and just kind of scapegoat Mike McCarthy. I do. I think it works in that direction, even though it's not necessarily fair. I mean, Cooper Rush, they cut him and had no concern about him going any anywhere else on cutdown day and now they're like oh yeah we'll, we'll start him he's fine he'll be great you know Dak will be back in a month which i agree with you sounds a little bit unrealistic so yeah they're kind of laying the groundwork it feels like already you know uh, the Dak injury i feel like should be another reminder to teams about the importance of having a backup quarterback i don't really know why but like i look at how philadelphia has handled it from carson wentz and nick Foles, carson wentz and jalen hurts to jalen hurts now in Gardner Minshew. Do you feel like more teams should start really prioritizing in the offseason to try to get a backup quarterback in case that scenario happens where our starter goes down, that we have someone here who could step in for four to six games if that ever happens, and we'll be able to win at least half those games. And when our starter does come back, at least we still have a chance. I think it has become one of the more underrated, important positions on an NFL roster. And I will say this, there's context. So if you're rebuilding or you know not a contending team, maybe you don't spend extra money on a backup. You know, maybe, sorry, we'll, we'll, we'll be fine with a journeyman type of guy who's playable. But if you think you have playoff expectations, what Dallas obviously should coming into this season in a weak NFC, here's an example. Minnesota Vikings, they also had two guys they did not think were good enough in Sean Mannion and Kellen Mond. They trade a seventh-round pick to the Raiders for Nick Mullins and now now, if Kirk Cousins has to miss a month or whatever, you have a solid backup quarterback. I'm not saying you have to go out and trade for Jimmy Garoppolo. I think people are overreacting as well. But having one of the better backups is an underrated, important aspect of roster construction for you know a team like Dallas this year. Yeah, I think the Saints have been another team that have been doing this over the last few years, right? They had the Teddy Bridgewater with Drew Brees. They had Drew Brees and Jameis Winston. Now it's Winston and Andy Dalton. In case something happens, obviously last year they went through four quarterbacks, um, which obviously hurt them, where they didn't make the playoffs, even though they had nine um, nine wins last year. Now this year, in case anything happens to Jameis, at least they have Andy Dalton there, who I think is a respectable backup there in case anything happens. Definitely something that I feel like it should be prioritized more, and I guess Dallas is one of those teams feeling it right now. The NFC East, Dallas is the only team with a loss right now. The Giants, the Commanders, and the Eagles all win in Week 1. The Giants beat the Titans. Um, speaking of Tennessee, you know, I feel like one of the injuries that happened during camp that nobody talked about that much was the Harold Landry injury. Terrence's ACL, it happens. And I feel like nobody brings it up anymore. And that was a gigantic loss for them. Obviously, re-signed there this offseason. Five-year deal, over $80 million. Um, I think he was up there in the league in total pressures last year. Do you have any concerns with this Titans team? Also traded A.J. Brown. Their number one receiver is Robert Woods coming off a torn ACL. We just mentioned they lost um, Harold Landry. Any concern with them? 
No doubt about it. I actually wrote a, a piece before the season began about NFL futures I liked for this season, and the Titans to miss the playoffs at minus 120 was in that article. I, I think there are issues that run pretty deep in this team. And then you mentioned Landry, and folks might say, hey, he's only, he's only like an above-average graded guy for you guys. You got to remember, he is an Ironman. He has played more snaps than any defensive lineman in the NFL over the last three seasons by like 400 or 500 snaps. The guy does not come off the field. So it's a volume thing. It's a he's good at everything. Maybe we don't think or we don't grade him out as great at any one aspect, but he's above 60 as a run defender, as a pass rusher, when he occasionally drops in coverage. Like he does everything well. Um, and yeah, you know, I think Traylon Burks and Kyle Phillips actually both look pretty good in their debuts at wide receiver. But yes, I, I have concern about this team. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I don't know if they're a playoff team this year after earning the one seed just just last year. Which is crazy to think about, right? I mean, like number one seed to not making the playoffs, especially in that stacked AFC, which is easily the better conference from the two. For them to possibly be in that scenario is crazy to think about. The AFC South as a whole, I mean, the Colts had a bit of a slow start, end up having a chance to win, end up in a tie. I don't know about you. But I feel like the Jaguars and Texans, which were always those free wins these last couple of years, I don't think they're as easy wins as people are thinking about anymore. Not at all. I mean, you look at the Texans. I think they had a underrated, really strong offseason, both in free agency and in the draft. They're still a couple years away. They had the lowest, you know, season win total of any team in Las Vegas at four and a half. And I, I'm not like saying they should be, you know, viewed in a better light. But you know, you add two first round picks and Kenyon Green and Derek Stingley Jr. I like Stephen Nelson as a free agent signing. Jerry Hughes was our second highest graded defender in the yes. NFL. Had two sacks. You know, at a 93.6 grade. And everyone always talked about. He was a high-pressure, low-sack guy. That's what we talk about. Regression always hits, gets two sacks in week one. So, yeah, there. I would say this. You put it perfectly. It's no longer a, you know, skip it on the schedule. You can't say, all right, well, we'll get that game out of the way. We'll beat them by 10, and, and you'll be hung over at the game, and then we'll focus on it. You can't do that. If you do it, you're going overtime as the, with the Colts and, and maybe losing that game. Yep, the Jaguars almost won the game against Washington. Houston really should have beat the Colts, kind of collapsed there in the second half, ending up in a tie. Let me go back to the NFC East for a second, because I mentioned the Giants before. I play this video, and we'll play it again over here, of Saquon Barkley when we were doing our Fantasy Sleepers episode. I had a really good feeling about Saquon Barkley because he's somebody who really never gives you headlines whenever he talks. But then he goes on this podcast, I forgot what it was called, but this is what he says. And this is a fiery, angry Saquon Barkley, which made me feel like he's going to go off this year, and he did in week one. Let me play that video over here. Do I feel like I'm back? I feel like I'm better, to be completely honest. I'm older now. I'm 25. Uh, I've been through some stuff, uh, you know, ups and downs. Um, and now I'm in a situation where, you, you know me, I, I always have the mindset of always being counted out, but now it's actually here. It's actually real. Um, people are really counting me out. People are trying to write me off. And I don't really do it for the pleasure of others or, or you know, making other people satisfied. I, I do it because I just want to be great. Uh, but now I have that extra motivation, the extra motivation to, to push me to go out there and, and kind of just be like, you know what, shut everyone up. Because last year it was more like, dang, the game was taken away from me. I, I, I never had a season when I didn't go play, go and play football. Now it's kill mindset. Now it's like, you know what, f everybody. Like, I'm ready to go crazy, um, and I'm going to let the world film me. All right. He did go crazy in week one and 164 rushing yards, 30 receiving yards, had a touchdown, had the go ahead two point conversion. They get the win. And I guess let me first ask you this. How do you feel about the Giants? Because I know that roster is still not great. 
the new regime walked into a terrible salary cap situation. But it feels like that team, one week in, has kind of bought into Brian Dayball, which is very important because we really never felt like that happened with Joe Judge. We never felt that with Pat Shermer. Kind of never felt it with Ben McAdoo either. Week one, it felt like these guys were really all in with him. Yeah, I got to give uh, Dr. Eric Eager some credit. I, I think I was too low on them, and I'm not trying to overreact to one game. Um, but they didn't even have, you know, first-round pick, top-five pick, Kayvon Thibodeau on the, on the field. They didn't have Azizo Jalari, their second-round pick last year. Two guys that probably should lead them in pressures going forward, along with Dexter Lawrence on the interior. So, you know, and, and then you mentioned Dable. You know, I think you can tell guys are bought in. I think him going for two, it's one of those watershed moments where now, every, if you weren't bought in, you sure are now. And he believes in them. They probably believe in him even more than before. Um, yeah, no, anyways, I give him credit because Eric was high on them coming into the season. Again, not as a contender, but as a you know eight, nine win football team. And I just didn't see it. Um, but I, I think they can be. I think they have enough pieces. You know, Adoree Jackson, some of the guys they brought in in recent years that are still there, that are still quality players. They have depth at wide receiver now some injuries already to start the season. But, yeah, they're not that bad of a football team. And if Dayball can get the most out of Daniel Jones, they could be, you know, a, a fringe 500 football team. So, yeah, coming into the season, PFF strength of schedule, which isn't just based off record, had the Giants with the easiest schedule this year in the league. And looking at their schedule right now, I made this tweet, and I got some flack for it, but their next three games are against the Panthers, the Cowboys without Dak, and then the Bears. And all three games are at home. I mean, like, those are winnable games, at least for them. I mean, we could see a scenario at worst two and two, maybe three and one, at best four and zero. Oh. I mean, this is a team that could at least be there and like, hey, they're they're winning games. Nobody expected this from them. And I, I've said this that a million times. The Cowboys won the NFC East last year. We just spoke about. It feels like they're taking a bit of a step back. The NFC East has had a new division winner in eighteen consecutive years. So if Dallas really is on the way out. We'll have a new one this year, whether it is the Giants, the Eagles, or the Commanders. Let me go to the other New York team with the Jets. This is a team that has been hammered by injuries from Zach Wilson, Mekhi Becton, Dwayne Brown is supposed to be his replacement. Jordan Whitehead today was announced he's dealing with a shoulder injury, probably will not play in week two against Cleveland. Your thoughts on the Jets, because... Robert Sala is somebody who the fans were very excited about. He has all these great quotes. For the first time after Sunday's game, I felt a level of frustration from Jets fans with Robert Sala. What do you think about them? You know, I think so too, and it's actually kind of funny because I think their defense actually played pretty well. Obviously, he's in charge of the entire team, but the defense looked good. I mean, Baltimore did not really move the football all that well. They had the splash touchdown to Rashad Bateman, the bomb, and and a couple of the nice plays, but free agent addition to DJ Reed had one of the interceptions of the entire season already in week okay. one. I thought Quinn Williams looked like the guy they drafted originally, so... You know, but I get the frustration. Of course, at, at a certain point, we can laud their draft strategy and getting all these good players and trading away guys like Jamal Adams, getting all his extra draft capital, and he might be out for the season again. So, not to kind of harp on that, but eventually, you got to win games, right? Eventually, it doesn't matter if you're doing all these great things off the field. It's got to translate. Um, you know, it's tough. I, I mean, this is probably an argument again why playing in the preseason there are risks. I know a lot of folks pointed out the teams that didn't play guys in preseason did not do particularly well in week one. Um, you know, I think it's a bit of an aberration. If you go back and look at it in the past, it, it doesn't really seem to be an impact. 
Um, and that's just the risk you take. And not having Zach Wilson now, um, you know, Flacco threw 59 times. I don't think any Jets fan wants to watch Joe Flacco throw the ball 60 <laughs> times in a game. Yeah, I mean, that was not fun. And it was kind of funny because um, Robert Sala earlier this week was talking about the Jets and their future. I actually have this video as well. He basically mentioned how he's keeping receipts of what everyone is saying about them. And eventually, whenever they do start winning, he's going to bring it out and show everybody. And Peyton Manning actually made fun of the Jets on the Manning cast, talking about Joe Flacco throwing 59 times. Robert Sala said today, I'm keeping your receipt as well, Peyton. So um, it's... um. You know, whatever. Again, it's all talk for now. Until they stop, until they start winning, everyone's gonna keep on talking about them. The thing is, their schedule is brutal, Brad. I mean, the Browns. I guess they have a bit of a break that Watson is not playing. That's coming up this week. But after that, I'm looking at it right now. We have the Bengals, the Steelers, the Dolphins, the Packers, the Broncos, the Patriots, the Bills, the Patriots again. I mean, that is a rough stretch there for the Jets, and they're doing it right now without their starting quarterback. Robert Sala did say today that they will stick with Joe Flacco, but the fact that they were considering a change tells me they are not satisfied with him either right now. So we might end up seeing Mike White sooner than later if the struggles continue there with the Jets. Let me go over to your team, the Chicago Bears. Um, a pretty, I guess, impressive win, shall we say, for them. I mean, I know it was in a monsoon, but they were underdogs in that game to a team that made the NFC Championship game last year. Any major takeaways from your Bears? I know the rookies played pretty well. And now going into week two on Sunday Night Football, they're 1-0. The Packers are 0-1. Who would have thought? Yeah, you know, it was a mud bowl. It is hard. They basically played a game of water polo against the San Francisco 49ers. But I think it's unfair to fully discredit it. You know, I think you mentioned the rookies. Um, you know, all of them played at least decently. None of them were a glaring issue. Even left tackle Braxton Jones, a fifth-round pick out of Southern Utah. It wasn't excellent, but it's Nick Bosa, right? And he he held him in check to a degree where Justin Fields could make some plays in that second half. Um, you know, I think you're also just seeing buy-in. I mean, they had three penalties. Discipline has been the biggest issue for this team in the last couple of years with Matt Nagy. So many penalties, shooting themselves in the foot and kind of losing games that they could have won. It was the opposite, and it showed up. Yeah, I mean, it's like hard to judge anything in that game because of the conditions. You know, I want to I want to ask you this because, like, I saw a lot of people talking about the 49ers, Trey Lance, how he played, and I'm like, it's so unfair to do that. But I guess let me ask you, let me ask you like this. From the teams that lost on Sunday, which one are you actually concerned with? Because I, I, I've seen a lot of overreactions. I guess the 49ers, the Rams were Thursday night, but the Rams, the Patriots, the Packers, the Cardinals. Are there any of those teams that you actually really concerned with? Yeah, I would say for me coming in, the Raiders and the Cardinals already gave me concerns. So a team that I think I was still kind of biding time and I'm now legitimately concerned about is the New England Patriots. And I think you can almost tell in Bill Belichick's comments, I, I'm not the first person to say this, I'm probably the 100th, but kind of making excuses and kind of saying, oh, if a couple breaks went our way, we could have won. And I actually don't think he was wrong. I went back and watched that game and they could have. They could have picked two off five times in that game, frankly. But but just hearing him say things and make it's just not what he's been doing for the last 30 years in football. So, you know, I think they, they lost a lot of offensive line talent. They, the defense is is not, frankly, talented on paper. Um, you know, I, I just I thought they were going to kind of, you know, go under the radar, win 10 games again. If they go seven and 10, I, I probably wouldn't be too surprised at this point. The thing about the Patriots, and I don't know about you they feel like a really boring football team. Like they're not like interesting to watch. I mean, it's, it's like, it's weird to say that, but like they really aren't. And um, 
I didn't like I barely tuned into that game. Like the Dolphins, I saw a few things that were going on there. Tua's had an interesting game. Jalen Waddle, the fourth and seven. That was a bit gutsy and it worked out. But the Patriots overall as a team, it just did not feel like a team that I want to watch. And I don't want to overreact again, but the idea of not hiring an offensive coordinator, do you feel like if this continues, we go into week three, week four, week five, eventually Bill does something about it? I think it's entirely possible, and I even know our, our colleague Doug Kide wrote today in his rumor roundup about Kendrick Bourne, the wide receiver, and how, yes, he was late to a meeting, and so he only played two snaps. He had one reception for 41 yards on one of those two snaps, but apparently Matt Patricia was a big factor in that decision um, you know, to bench him, and, and that's just kind of, it's a continuation of his, his tenure in Detroit and, and just maybe you know how he goes about things, and yeah, I mean, the offense looked out of sorts. Mac Jones looked uncomfortable. He is dealing with back spasms, and and that di- that Dolphins defense is formidable, no question about it. At all three levels, they have talent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think you can hire an offensive coordinator midseason, I suppose. But you know, my dream—I don't want Bill Belichick calling offensive plays. So I guess that's what I'm rooting for at this point. Yeah, we'll see what they do. But like I said, I just was not that entertained by the Patriots in that week one game. Let me ask you this: anything major surprise you? from Sunday, from week one, whether it's a team, a player, a unit, whatever it is, and you'll be keeping a close eye on them here going into week two. I'll give one as well after you. Yeah, sure. You know, I think, um, I guess one example could be Minnesota. You know, I, I, I had them as a playoff team that, you know, they were kind of projected to make the playoffs or kind of be in that mix, um, depending where you looked. But, you know, I, I think as they work Jalen Rigor into this offense as well, I, I mean, it's it's immediate results what we expected, where Kevin O'Connell had Justin Jefferson lined up over Preston Smith, the edge rusher for the Green Bay Pack. Like, he was doing make, make, doing all the things that make it easy on Kirk Cousins, make it easy on this offense. And I think the surprise for me was just seeing it right away. Like, it, it didn't take time for Justin Jefferson to have 184 yards and two touchdowns. And if, and if they can even grow and get better in this system as the season goes on, which I don't see why they wouldn't, um, you know, young guard Ed Ingram out of LSU, second round pick, I thought looked good as a run blocker, a little bit of issues in pass pro, but, but nevertheless, like they, they may be ahead of schedule and I think they could win 10, 11 games in the NFC. A lot of people had the Vikings as, as a sleeper team. And I felt like as the season got closer, they went from an underrated team to a team that everyone is talking about. And then seeing it in week one, it was really impressive. And as you mentioned, they were moving Justin Jefferson all over the place. As soon as you see a number 91 lined up across with Justin Jefferson, I mean, I think you should be doing something about it. But um, a very, very impressive showing there in week one for Kevin O'Connell. The thing that was, I guess, shocking for me, and it's a bit something that I don't know how many fans really care about it, but James Robinson of the Jaguars tore his Achilles in week 16 of last year. Didn't really do much in OTAs, didn't do any, didn't do much at camp either. He ends up playing 34 snaps on Sunday. Travis Etienne plays 36, but Robinson had 11 carries to Etienne's four, and he finished the game with 66 rushing yards and two total touchdowns, one on the ground and one in the air uh, in the passing game. I was a bit surprised by that. I mean, I thought that Etienne obviously was doing most of the work throughout camp and OTAs. um, Doug Peterson obviously inherited this running back room. I guess the guy who was he he was working with throughout camp and OTAs would be the guy he would go with. He was pretty heavy on James Robinson. He did speak to reporters today and said, this is what we expected out of James Robinson. I guess that this is the plan moving forward, that they are going to be using both of them split carries the way it kind of was there in week one for the Jaguars. All right, last thing here, and a bit of a fun topic. The Browns have a new midfield logo, Brad. I'm sure you saw this. It's an elf. Um, that's how it looks like. 
it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, any thoughts on this? Because I had literally no reaction as soon as I saw it. My, my number one takeaway is not great ball security. Not really holding it high and tight. <laughs> kind of a loose football. It's a, you know, yeah, right. You're not really holding yeah. it by the nose. It's kind of a weird way to hold the ball. But no, I think it's funny. I, you know, I mean, their logo has been a brown helmet for like 30 years. So I guess this is their original mascot. Um, you know, funny looking guy. You know, it's it's something to you know <laughs> to lighten lighten the mood a little bit in Cleveland. But yeah, I'm with you. I'm not 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 a, a strong reaction besides you know his lack of ball security. Yeah, I mean, that elf, for people who don't know, was the first ever logo in Brown's franchise history. So there's the explanation behind it, in case people were wondering. But I got a text from a friend of mine when I posted this yesterday, and he said, if you're a casual NFL fan and you see this, you would be so confused by the entire Browns organization because the team name is Browns, but their primary color is orange, but their fans are called the Dog Pound, but now they have an elf in the middle of the field. So, like... <laughs> The whole thing is is um, very um, confusing if you're a casual NFL fan, but um, it's much better than, I guess, what the Giants and Jets have with an NFL logo and no team logo. I know the Panthers had that for a while where they had the NFL logo. Why do you not have your team logo there? Eventually, they changed it when David Tepper came in. But a very interesting one. They'll debut it here on Sunday against the Jets whenever um, Joe Flacco comes back to town to play against them. All right, Brad, I want to thank you for coming on. Everyone can follow you on Twitter. It is at PFF underscore Brad. Everyone can find you as well on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays now on PFF Wire with our colleague Doug Hyde. You guys go through all the news, all the rumors, and all the analysis, and much more. So check that out on the PFF YouTube channel, and I believe also on Apple, Spotify, whenever you listen to your podcast. So um, check that out as well if you want to hear more. Brad, we will have have another guest here joining us in a second so be there for that as well all right continuing on here with the Ari Marov NFL show he is a former NFL executive the co-host of the GM shuffle podcast does great work with Vsin as well and he also has the daily coach newsletter it is Michael Lombardi Michael thanks for coming on after an eventful week one I would say thank you Ari I appreciate it yeah, it was a great week one I mean football's back that makes it great yeah, I mean, the, it, people have been waiting since since February. There's like, whenever we get the 100 days away, 50 days away, everyone has those graphics ready to go throughout the offseason. And then it finally hits. And like, you see all the football tweets on your timeline, the injury reports and everything. And then you finally feel it. And then the games start happening. And it is amazing. And week one was really insane i mean there were so many upsets a lot of underdogs winning a lot of crazy endings but i want to go before even week one started because on friday the lamar jackson extension talks came to an end with the ravens he does not get a deal done with them i guess put your gm cap back on how do you feel about how lamar has handled this the ravens have handled this and the way all this has gone down where he has been standing his ground with what he wants even though probably other quarterbacks around the nfl have probably taken that final offer you know i i think look it's it's hard to negotiate a contract with a player directly and his mother i think it's really a challenge uh not because they don't know there's really no way to really kind of sell your point to somebody other than he has a steadfast belief. So I think it's a really hard thing to do. He wants the full guarantee. And certainly, you know, when he saw Watson get it, everybody, every quarterback wanted that. And I think ultimately Lamar is going to get another bite of the apple. I mean, he's so young that he's going to have another another time to get this 
get this contract. And, you know, for him, it really works out because they're going to have to franchise them. So we know how that goes. Just ask Kirk Cousins. So, you know, his the only risk he's taking by not signing a long-term deal is injury. And that usually is why deals get done. The risk of injury far outweighs turning the deal down. Yeah, and you know, it was a five-year extension worth over $250 million with 133 fully guaranteed. That was the final offer made by Baltimore. The Ravens and Jackson did a pretty good job of not having anything leak throughout all these negotiations. We don't have an agent. That usually happens. But now that the deadline was over and Sunday came, the numbers come out. Do you feel like that is something that Lamar Jackson might be upset about? Like we agreed to keep this private and all of a sudden before kickoff, all these reports are coming out. Well, I don't know what was told between DaCosta and Lamar. I don't know. Or Pat Moriarty and Lamar in terms of the mom who was going to keep it. But you're right. It was pretty well tight lipped. I mean, I was told a month ago that they were offering him a substantial package and, you know, look, I don't know if it's fair or unfair. I mean, Lamar turned it down. He didn't think it was good enough. I mean, whether it's public or not, that's the reality. If you're embarrassed by turning it down and you want to keep it secret, then why did you turn it down? <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't really, I mean, it's, you turned it down. It wasn't good enough for you. Understandable. Uh, I don't know why you would be offended by people knowing what you turned down. Yeah. Just one more thing on this topic is that the Sean Watson deal officially considered an outlier around front offices, especially after the Russell Wilson deal, the Kyler Murray deal came in. And is that probably the reason why the Ravens never even considered going there because those two deals came in the traditional way? Well, I think, you know, when you, when you say yes to the Watson deal by the Browns, they're going to be trapped by that forever. Why would you give Watson a fully guaranteed and not give it to me? Whereas every organization operates under their own own demeanor. They operate under their own set of rules. And I don't think the fans understand the way this rule was set up back in the 60s when NFL franchises were were worried about not being able to make payroll when we didn't have the TV money that we have today or in the fifth. So when you guaranteed a contract that was past a March 31st deadline, you had to send that money to the league office as an escrow account so that the league had it so that you know you could make payment. We know that's far-fetched today, but they never changed the rules. So no owner wants to eliminate his cash flow by sending huge sums of money to the league office to put in an escrow account. It just doesn't. To me, the conversation should be, are the owners going to change this kind of rule that was set up to protect them from, from when they were certainly on the edge you know, of financial security? Are they going to change that? I doubt it. I don't think it's going to affect other teams because – you know, what teams do, it doesn't affect what Mike Brown does. What teams do, it doesn't affect what other teams do. Your own team behaves in its own manner. Yeah, it's a very outdated rule. I think one rule that fans don't really know about, but um, it has been something that is one of the reasons why we don't see fully guaranteed contracts happening that often. I know, of course, a lot of owners were not happy with the Watson deal. Stephen Bishire, the Ravens owner, was the one owner who came out publicly and said that contract was wrong and it would make future um, negotiations with quarterbacks far more difficult. So we'll see where this goes come next year, assuming Lamar continues to have um, spectacular play the way we would expect him to. Let me go into some of these games here that happened in week one. I guess I'll start backwards with Monday night. I talked a little bit about this earlier in the episode, but 
ownership matters a lot in football. There are some that are hands-on. There are some that are not. The Broncos just got new owners. They see what happened on Monday night. They understand, obviously, it's very early. Let's not overreact over here. But the fact that they weren't the ones to hire this staff, is that someone that a guy like Nathaniel Hackett should be thinking about throughout this season, knowing that they inherited me and they weren't the ones to hire me? Well, I think the fact that he works for one of the richest men in the world should always worry you because when you work for somebody with that much wealth, I don't think it's it, it, buying out your contract really matters, you know. So whether you he got hired by him or not, I mean, even if he got hired by him, it, it, you're always worried. You're always as good as your last game. I think certainly uh, there's a lot to 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 unpack in that game, and the fact to me what I thought the biggest effect of that was it was premeditated. I mean, when, when Wilson came to the sideline, he took his helmet off before Buck or Aikman even announced they were going to kick it. You could tell they were going to kick it. So that told me the third down call was premeditated. We're going to get in field goal range. We're going to kick it. To me, that's the problem that it goes back to my own theory of we're not trying to get into field goal range. We're trying to get into makeable field goal range, you know? And, and to me, the way they moved the ball, as easily as they moved the ball, facing a fourth and five should not have been a problem because they moved the ball at will. Average per attempt was incredible. So I think it was a miscalculation, and they put all their chips into one place. And to me, common sense tells you we shouldn't have done that. Yeah, and you know, everyone was um, posting the quote that Nathaniel Hackett said yesterday about, yeah, we should have gone for it. If people watched the full clip, he actually ended up I guess, triple downing on the plan was to get to the 46 and kick a 64-yard field goal, and that's why we did it. He basically was saying, because we missed it, then obviously we should have gone for it, looking at it in hindsight. But he, it sounds like he was still talking about it in a way where he still believes what he did was the right move, and he didn't necessarily acknowledge that not going for it on fourth and five was the wrong move. Um, so I found that to be very odd, but it is pretty early in the season, like we just said. And um, they did have over 400 yards of offense in that game. If they, and if they don't fumble twice at the goal line, the situation probably never well, comes if up. They, if they kick a field goal, they win the game. Yeah. I mean, if they, you know, I, I mean, if they decide that three points isn't a, a, a bad thing, you know, and we saw a lot of games on Sunday where the coaches turned down three points. See, I think what you have to really understand is if football is a game of three games, it's the first quarter is assessment, the second and the third quarter is adjustments, the fourth quarter is a standalone game. And you've got to measure that as standalone game. I mean, Denver was walking a tightrope, really. Seattle was walking a tightrope. They got one first down in the fourth quarter. They had the ball for four minutes. There is Who's in control of the game and who's in the lead? Those are two things you have to determine when you're watching a football game. Denver was in full control of that game, and they weren't in the lead. So to me, if they just kicked points, they were in control of the game. And if they would have added points along the way, I know they're in the one-yard line. I know analytics says you have to go for it. Well, I think what's really met, which changed a lot since Doug Peterson initiated this back in 2017, I think teams are ready for fourth down now. I think teams are really prepared for fourth down. And I think it's part of a game plan. It's part of a game strategy. And so it's not as easy to go for it on fourth down as it was. I mean, Frank Wright really cost his team a chance to win the game because he went for it on fourth down. Now, maybe you could say Blankenship would have missed it. I don't know. It was a chip shot. Maybe he would have, maybe he wouldn't. If Pierce catches the ball in the end zone, they win anyway. 
However, that being said, the Buffalo game, he turns down points. The Houston game, he turns down points. I don't know how much tolerable Jim Mercy is going to be to lose games. You know, the object of football is to score points and to win the game. It's not to collect yards. It's not to collect yards. It's to win. And, and when you turn down winning because you think the analytics say this, the analytics says it, but what does the game say? Yeah, and the Colts, by the way, you mentioned them. It's a, it's a surprising stat a little bit, but they have now won a week one game in nine consecutive years. Um, part of that is a Frank Reich. Part of that, of course, was um, a previous regime, but um, definitely a surprising stat for a team that we always talk about very highly. Every year going into week one, I tell myself to expect the unexpected, right? And I know after the week, the games are over. There are all these overreactions on social media, on national TV. But is there a team for you that lost in week one that you are genuinely concerned about? I mean, some teams that come to mind to me, I guess, the 49ers, the Rams, the Jets, the Packers, the Cardinals, any of those teams that you are actually concerned about? Well, I think the 49ers are going to have to prove that you can win without a quarterback. I think Mike Marks' comments the other day about both Justin Fields and Trey Lance, I mean, have to concern you, especially coming from somebody who understands how to evaluate a quarterback. I mean, you can say whatever you think, and I have certain opinions on Mike Marks, uh, that that are different than most. Uh, Mike can evaluate the quarterback and Mike can coach the quarterback. You don't find Mark Bolger. You don't take Kurt Warner, who wouldn't throw a pass in Green Bay if you talked to Ron Wolf and turn him into a really good player and win that Super Bowl with the Rams. Uh, Mark Bolger, you know, Trent Green, you go through all the quarterbacks that he's developed. When he says something like that and you're the 49ers and you're John Lynch and I don't care what Twitter said about Trey Lance, and he makes a great point. Like Lamar Jackson is the 32nd pick in the draft. And Trey Lance is the third. You watch two of their college tapes. They're not the same player. They're not the same player. Lamar had to sit in that green room for 32 picks. He was outstanding at Louisville. He won the Heisman. And yet people scoffed at him. Meanwhile, Trey Lance is the third pick because Twitter had a momentum build for him. Way different. You know, so I worry about San Francisco. I think they kept Garoppolo, which is smart. I really do. I worry about their team holding together because at some point, no matter how many captains that John Lynch and Kyle create, the team's going to look at the quarterback and say, we got to win. We got to win. So they would, they're too good of a team to not win. And they gave away a game in, in Chicago that they should have never given away. You know, I, I think when you look at the other teams that lost, I think every season there's always teams that don't start well. That You know, last year New England didn't start well. They played better in the middle towards the end, then they didn't finish well. So I think you have to be really careful before prejudging. But it all comes back to the quarterback. Are you sure your quarterback's really good? Is Chicago sure that Fields is good? Is Lance good? You know, I think that's what you have to ask. Yeah, you know, I've said this before here on the show. I feel like the most comparable um, comparison, I guess, to Trey Lance would be what happened with Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes, where they both sat a year. But if you remember, after the year was over with Patrick Mahomes, they immediately traded Alex Smith. They didn't even wait. They, they did it during the Super Bowl week. In this case with Garoppolo, I know they wanted to trade him, but they ended up holding him until the end. I know part of it was because of the injury. But eventually, they still kept him around, which tells me I don't know how confident they are when it comes to Trey Lance, especially when you have this roster. I guess, what is your two cents of how everything will end up unfolding there in San Francisco with Jimmy Garoppolo still in the building right now? And I don't know how fair it is to judge Trey Lance based off that game, considering the conditions on the field, but how do you see this unfolding here this year? 
I think it is fair to grade him on that game. It was a high-level game. I mean, he's playing against a defense that I don't think is elite. He stared down the receivers the fourth quarter. He had one He had one third down. Uh, they converted one third down by pass. When it was fourth down, he missed receivers wide open. I mean, what Mike said is true. His footwork is not very good, and he's not an elite athlete. Now, can he get better? He's not ready to play yet. I think the difference between Patrick Mahomes sitting a year and Trey Lance sitting a year is the difference between New York and China. I mean, it's vast, okay? When you went to practice and you talked to anybody at the Chiefs, they all were ta- talking about how great Mahomes looks in practice, how unbelievable he was on the scout team. You don't get that rhetoric out of San Francisco. You just didn't. Lance is a kid who's a young player who played one game at North Dakota State his senior year. He hasn't played a lot of football. He's not able to play a lot of football. It wasn't. It's not his fault. He's going to take some time. I, I tend to look the other way. I don't know why they're in a rush to play him. Like, I don't know why they're in such a rush. Play Garoppolo another year. You have him on a cheap contract. Lance, you got for three more years. What are you in a rush to prove? That you were right to make the trade? That Lynch and Adam Peters, the two guys orchestrated the deal, were right? I, I think, to me, you're better off if you just let Garoppolo continue. I mean, Kyle's won 31 games in San Francisco with Garoppolo. He's won seven without him. Do you feel like the draft capital that they gave up to get him, when they traded up to to move up to that spot, they still didn't know who they were taking. Many people thought it would have been Mac Jones, ended up being Trey Lance. Do you feel like that is playing a major role here as to why they're essentially forced to go with him this year? I think, to me, and I've reported this numerous times, I think Kyle wanted Mac Jones. I think he got talked into into Trey Lance. Now, they all deny that. They continue to deny that, you know, and – I know that that they can deny it all they want. You know, that was the idea. And I think that they felt like when they traded up to do what they did, they gave up way so much capital. It had to be Trey Lance. It had to be Trey Lance. And, you know, they're going to have to justify it. You know, will he come out and play good against Seattle? Probably. Will he throw the ball? If his receivers are open, you can make throws. I mean, what I think fans don't really understand is sometimes the scheme makes the throw, not the quarterback makes the throw. And you have to evaluate teams in the fourth quarter when they know you have to throw it and the defense knows you have to throw it. Fourth quarter numbers are really important. I mean, Lance got one first down throwing in the fourth quarter. That's when he was behind in the game. They couldn't run. They couldn't do it. They were dominating the game as long as they could run it. Yeah, it was um, very interesting. We should also mention George Kittle did not play in that game as well we'll see if he plays this week with that groin injury you mentioned mac jones i want to talk about the patriots here for a second because you know bill belichick pretty well from all your years working with him the whole thing of not hiring a real offensive coordinator and using patricia i don't know how big of a deal that is but i felt like they were a bit of a boring offense on sunday do you feel any concerns about this process they have in place right now well, I think you have to be. I mean, they, they certainly were a better team last year offensively towards the end of the year with Mac Jones than they were right now. I mean, I think they're trying to find their identity. You know, they they started out trying to be a zone, outside zone team in the preseason. In the game against Miami, they went back to more direct runs, which they were more effective with. Uh, but I think their execution has to get better. Look, I think the design of the offense is coming from more than one person. I think Bill's intimately involved, and he should be. He's the best coach on the coaching staff. I, I think they have to get better production from their offensive line. There's no doubt. And they got to stop turning the ball over. I mean, they've lost three games in a row to Miami now. And each one of those games, Miami has created the turnovers. It's been penalties and turnovers that have cost them the game. 
you know, and, and that's been a real issue every time they play Miami. I mean, they fumbled two times in the game. They gave up a they gave up a touchdown. They turned the ball over early in the game. They're driving it down the field. They got a chance, and you know, the, uh, Howard tips the ball to Holland. And he makes a great play. So, look, they're a work in progress. There's no denying, and I think that they've made some progress from the summer to that game, but they still have a ways to go. Yeah, but one of the main reasons why the Patriots are in this situation is because Josh McDaniels went to the Raiders to become their head coach. He also brought your son to be his offensive coordinator there. What did you see in week one with that offense as they start working on getting everything to gel there? In New England? In Las Vegas. In Las Vegas? Well, I think their execution wasn't very good. You know, I think I think when you really honestly watch the tape and you see what happened in the game, uh, there was throws that 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 Carr typically makes. You know, you say, well, he got sacked five times. Well, a couple of those sacks were by coverage sacks. I think Derek wasn't as sharp as he typically was. He has Waller open for a touchdown on the first first on the third down in the red zone, and he throws it behind him. You know, and then they got behind in the game. But look, I think for the Raiders to be really a good team this year. They have to play to their strength, and their strength is their two ends, their two rushers, their Chandler Jones and Matt Crosby. And how do they affect the game? They affect the game when they can play from in front. You know, everybody wants to talk about the West Coast offense, the West Coast offense. The West Coast offense is not smash seven curl. It's not 20 bingo cross. It is we are going to throw the ball to get the lead, and we're going to have a defense that complements the team. And so that's the Raiders' formula. They've got to play from in front. When they play from behind, now they're one of their better players. Josh Jacobs is on the sideline. He can't. They don't run him. They only he only carried the ball ten times. There's no balance to what they were doing, and they got behind seventeen to three with the turnover at the end of the half. I think there's a lot of room for growth in Oakland's and in, in Las Vegas's team. That being said, for all the mistakes they made in the game, for all those mistakes, they got the ball with three thirty to go and a chance to win the game, and they, and then they made another mistake. Yeah, that was, um, um, you know, I'm looking just at the AFC West right now, and obviously it's it's easily the most stacked division in the NFL. Um, before the season started, I guess, there was a lot of debate about how this division will shake out. How do you feel like all this will go after one week here? I know it's obviously very early, but how did you have this before the season? Now that you've seen one week here, we saw Kansas City without Tyree Kill. They still look great. The Chargers with this new look defense with all these new pieces for Brandon Staley. Overall, how are you expecting this, this division to fall out? I still think Kansas City is the best team in the West. I mean, they're more balanced. I mean, this, whatever, you know, the Chargers gave up eight yards per attempt in the Raider game. And, and we know that Carr missed a ton of throws. They gave up eight yards per attempt, and Carr missed throws. So I'm not sold that they're going to be a great defense yet, especially when you look at the tape and see what happened. Uh, I worry about Russell Wilson. You know, he had one carry in the game for two yards. Last year he had the lowest rushing total in his career at 183. You know, he couldn't run away from a defensive lineman when he started to get out of the pocket. Russell's skill set is to be wild plays, run around, make a throw, throw it here, run around. Those don't seem to come up anymore. And how many times have you seen Russell in a game where he's down by three or less points, not lead his team back? It happened last year, and it happened in the first game again this year. It used to be the betters would never want to bet against Russell in a close game because he would always bring them back, you know, let Russ cook. So far, that hasn't been the last year. It wasn't the case, and this year it isn't the case. You know, the whole thing with Russell Wilson and Seattle on the breakup, and I know there was some tension there, but 
Why do you think was the main reason why Seattle eventually decided to move him? I think the contract was part of it, but do you feel like somebody like him who does move around and we're not seeing that as much right now, do they feel like eventually he won't be the same quarterback as he gets older in age? Could that be a factor here? I think they sold at the highest level. I think they sold at the highest level and, you know, they're going to struggle, you know, and I think when they went to meet with, Jody Davis, the owner of Seattle, and they went in there and they presented what they thought was the future of the company or the future of the team. They made us, they made a decision that, you know, maybe he in two years from now evaluate us. We can get a bunch of assets for him. And I I, I think to me, Monday night, if I'm a Bronco fan, I wasn't wowed by what Russell did. I thought a lot of the plays he made were plays the offense made. Again, is it the quarterback making the throw or is the system making the throw? You know, now you got to be accurate with the ball and all that. But to me, I, I, I didn't see Russell as the athlete that he was two years ago by far. Yep. It will be interesting to see how this all does moving forward. Of course, a lot of people talking negatively right now about Denver after that week one game, but obviously a lot more time here to go. Let me go to a couple of teams that won here before I wrap this up. The Steelers defense really came to play on Sunday against Joe Burrow and the Bengals. They forced five turnovers. But at the same time, you lose J.J. Watt, T.J. Watt, excuse me, for the next five to six weeks. They still almost lost that game, and they probably should have. If they had lost that game, I would imagine the public outcry in Pittsburgh for Kenny Pickett will only heat up, especially in the coming weeks, if they are now winning games and the defense isn't the same the way it would be if T.J. Watt is out there. I don't think it's going to affect Mike Tomlin because Mike Tomlin's going to basically say, look, you know, we gave ourselves a chance to win the game. I mean, I don't think Mike Tomlin's looking for, at the stat sheet, looking for the greatest show on turf out of Trubisky. He's looking for him to manage the game, make a couple critical plays, don't lose the game. I think if we learned anything on Sunday in the NFL, it's the old adage, teams lose, teams don't win, the other team loses. You know, who makes the least mistakes usually wins. And I think Mike wants to limit his mistakes. If he puts Pickett out there, he could open the door up for a lot more mistakes. And all of a sudden, you know, now, you know, he's got two holes in the boat. He's got a defense that's giving up plays and he's got an offense that's making mistakes. So, you know, look, at the most popular position in all of football is the backup quarterback. And so that's, this conversation is going to go on for another 17 weeks. I, I've never been a Mitchell Trubisky fan. I, I nicknamed him MVP Mitch because Chicago, because the Las Vegas casinos were all crying. They had liability on him to be the MVP of the league when he was riding high in Chicago. And I laughed at it. And so I nicknamed him MVP Mitch, but, you know, he is what he is. He can run around, which helps a bad, behind a bad offensive line. That's one thing he can do. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how how that all does there because I just feel like without TJ Watt now, that defense definitely takes a bit of a hit there. And if the offense isn't producing, um, I think you're right. Mike Tomlin won't budge or anything, but um, this is a guy who has played a lot of college football, unlike somebody like Trey Lance. So he has a lot of experience there um, playing, and we'll see if they ever decide to make a move. Last one here for me. A lot of people seem to be very much in on this Vikings team now that there's an offensive-minded coach in the building with Kevin O'Connell. Are you buying into this team after that very impressive week one performance against the Packers? You know, I, I said I wrote for VEASAN.com on our betting guide. Uh, I thought the, the over for the Vikings was a good play. I think if you really studied the Vikings last year, they were kind of an anomaly in this sense. They were really good offensively. They were really good offensively, even though their offensive line wasn't great. They were the fourth best team in the National Football League on third down. 
they were one of the worst teams on defense, period. They were bad on first and second down. So to me, that's a fixable problem. And I think Ed Donatello has come in, lifted some of that tension that was in the room with Mike Zimmer off. And I think their skill players are so good and talented that it's hard to deal with them. I think they can move the football. They're going to move the ball on anybody. I mean, look, if Philadelphia plays the way they did against Detroit, Minnesota's going to move the ball, right? They're going to move the football. They're a good team. I think they were a better team than their eight wins last year. Just like I thought Carolina was a better team than their five wins last year. You know, even people would laugh at that. But, you know, without McCaffrey and all those, you know, a lot of close games they lost. So when you're looking at that, when you're getting ready to play the next season, you're saying that they're a better team if they add pieces. You know, the, the thing about the Vikings is Kirk Cousins has dealt with Mike Zimmer. We've heard a little bit of some tension there between those two. Do you feel like switching it up to an offensive-minded guy, someone who will – basically be a Kirk Cousins friend, I guess, there makes a difference for a quarterback like Kirk. Some people could take criticism. Tom Brady could do it, right? Kirk Cousins, you got to be a little bit more buddy-buddy with him. And it seems like Kevin O'Connell is that type of a coach. Do you feel like that makes a major difference for Kirk Cousins? I mean, I think it's probably a major, like any workplace, you know, if you're constantly getting badgered, you don't want to go to work. I mean, it constantly becomes annoying. And I think, you know, Mike was always trying to play physical, be tough-minded, you know, he always was crying for more runs. Well, you know, you and I both know in the National Football League, if you run the ball, you're going to kick field goals. If you throw explosive passes for 25 yards, you're going to score touchdowns. You know, we all know that. You know, you need explosive plays to win, to score points. So, you know, I, I think it's probably like anything. I think it was time for a change. You know, and I still think Mike's a really good coach. I mean, for what he had last year to be fourth in the league on third down defense just shows you how good of a coach he is on the defensive side. Just don't think they did a good enough job offensively as they tried to find their identity. Yep, and the Vikings here this week will have the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday night, a rare doubleheader on Monday night coming up here this week. All right, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on. This was um, very insightful. Everyone can follow you on Twitter. It is at MLombardiNFL. Everyone should also check out the GM Shuffle podcast, your work on VSYN and the Daily Coach newsletter. Thanks again, and um, let's do this again later in the season. Thank you, Art. Appreciate it.